Well, good morning. I would like to know um, what the first thing is that you feel when you hear the words, the Holy Spirit. For many of us, I think what we feel is confusion. And maybe for others, if confusion is not the first thing, it might be a close second or third. See, we know that the Holy Spirit matters. We're told He does. We really don't get it. There may be still others of us who think they have the Holy Spirit all figured out. Truthfully, they might be better off being confused like the rest of us. This morning, I want to preach on a core Christian theology of the Holy Spirit. And there are a few reasons that I want to do that on this Sunday, even while we're in the midst of Eastertide. First of all, it does, it does look back to what we talked about last Sunday when it comes to the oneness of Christ's body, which is brought about through the Holy Spirit. Second of all, it looks forward to Pentecost Sunday, which we will celebrate on May 23rd, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But thirdly, it also reflects what we've heard in the lessons for today. In the second lesson and in the gospel lesson, we heard talked about the giving of the Holy Spirit by Jesus and by the Apostle John. Another reason why I think this is helpful timing for a sermon like this is because later on in the year, I want to preach a couple of sermons, one on the fruit of the Spirit and another on spiritual gifts. And so this sermon is going to provide a foundation for those sermons to come. Now, I'll admit, this sermon is going to be um, more of a teaching sermon than a preaching sermon. I'm going to be throwing a lot of information at you. And so to help you follow along, uh, I've provided a handout in your bulletin. I hope that that's there. Um, looks like this. Do pull that out. I think you'll find it useful as we go along. Before we jump in, I want to say that it is a strange task to try and give a clear and succinct doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is that the Holy Spirit is quite mysterious. You've probably heard the Spirit compared to wind before. Jesus does this. He tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Wind is a difficult thing to describe, right? We can see its effects, but we can't see it. How do you describe something you can't see? Therefore, what's easiest to describe about the wind is not what the wind is, but what the wind does, its activity, right? So it is with the Holy Spirit. Listen to what theologian Bernard Rahm writes. He says, To profess to know a great deal about the Spirit of God is contrary to the nature of the Spirit of God. There's a hiddenness to the Spirit that cannot be uncovered. There is an immediacy of the Spirit that cannot be shoved into a vision. There is an invisibility of the Spirit which cannot be forced into visibility. For these reasons, one feels helpless, inadequate, and unworthy to speak about the Spirit, says the theologian. This is good for us to hear. This kind of thing helps us to have the right posture towards this subject, one of humility. We should never come to this discussion 
with an attitude of mastery of subject matter, as if God's Spirit could be mastered by us. As you know, the Bible provides a number of symbols for the Holy Spirit, since we cannot see him. The Spirit appeared at Jesus' baptism as a dove. See Luke chapter 3. The Spirit appeared at Pentecost as flames of fire above the disciples' head. See Acts chapter 2. Throughout the Scriptures, the Spirit is also symbolized by water and by oil. But consider this symbol, which the ancient Celtic Christians of Ireland used. They called the Holy Spirit the wild goose. See the image on the handout. In their minds, this is a good symbol for the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is untamed. The Holy Spirit is unpredictable. In other words, God's Spirit is not mastered by us. But while we can't speak about the Holy Spirit with precision, at the same time, it's a really important conversation for us to engage with. See, a theology of the Holy Spirit matters, just like all theology matters. You've heard me say this before, that theology is not some abstract field of study. No, it's practical. What we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about the world, it will shape how we live, period. All theology is practical, and therefore, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, what we understand or don't understand about the Spirit will have an effect on our lives. So what we seek today is a deeper understanding of the Holy Spirit, but even more than that, we, th we seek through understanding a clearer pathway to experience, to experience of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. So, first off, I want to be really clear about what the Holy Spirit is not. In fact, there's a whole branch of theology called apophatic theology, which the church fathers often engaged in, often called negative thought theology as well. And essentially, the idea is to try and understand who God is by first understanding what God is not. So in that vein, let me First say that contrary to what some people might believe, the Holy Spirit is not like the weird uncle of the Trinity. He is not like the force in the Star Wars movies, nor is he like a Christian version of Casper. None of those things. Likewise, as some heretics have thought, the Holy Spirit is not a created being, nor is he a separate and distinct God. And neither is he an impersonal energy source. So what then is the Holy Spirit? In light of that last question, in light of that last heresy too, we might want to rephrase that question. Not what is the Holy Spirit, but who? Who is the Holy Spirit? This is one of the many questions which is posed for us in our Anglican Catechism, which is called to be a Christian. If you want to see a copy of it, there's, there's one out there on the recommended resources shelf. It poses this question, who is the Holy Spirit? Answer, God the Holy Spirit is the third person in the one being of the Holy Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, and equally worthy of our honor and worship. Now that's a bit... It's a bit technical. And so I want to break that down. Let's break it down and find out why this is more than just abstract, but is actually practical to us. 
What do we see in that statement? First of all, what we see is an affirmation that the Holy Spirit is not a what, but a who, not an it, but a he. In other words, the Holy Spirit is a person. If you're using your handout, that's the first fill in the blank. There will be some more to follow. The Holy Spirit is a person with a will, a person who can be known or not known, a person who can be pleased or displeased, a person who can be worshipped or blasphemed. What we see in the second part of this Anglican Catechism statement is a wholehearted affirmation that the Holy Spirit is God. Why else would Jesus command us in Matthew 28, verse 19, to be baptized in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, except that there is an equality and unity between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And thus we worship the Spirit as the third person of the one Holy Trinity. In the scriptures, there are two words used to refer to the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word ruach. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word pneuma. And it's from that word pneuma that we get the word pneumatology, which is essentially the theology of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. These words, ruach and pneuma, essentially communicate the same thing, but each of those words has a variety of meanings. They can refer to spirit, or wind, or even breath. And all of these meanings, if you'll notice, they emphasize power or energy in some way. And what we'll see is that all of these meanings are fitting images to help us understand the Holy Spirit. As we go along this morning, I'll be referring back to these things, spirit, breath, wind, and power. But at this point, I want us to just pause. Just pause with me and consider We've been talking for just a moment about who the Holy Spirit is, but we need to realize that the earliest Christians did not use this language. Here's what I mean. They didn't know exactly who the Spirit was yet. You see, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come, and the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, but who was going to tell them who the Holy Spirit was? The Old Testament didn't say a lot about who the Spirit is or what he would do after Christ came, the New Testament had not yet been written. The creeds came centuries later to hammer out what our Orthodox Christian doctrine is. So we should just recognize that these earliest believers were left trying to understand who the Holy Spirit was in the same way that the disciples, as they started to follow Jesus, were trying to figure out who Jesus was, right? The best thing that these early Christians could do to understand who the Holy Spirit was, was to watch what the Holy Spirit did. And that is what I want to suggest is the best way for us to go forward this morning in understanding the Holy Spirit. So, We're going to turn to the pages of Scripture where we can find some answers to this question. What does the Holy Spirit do? What is He about? What are His activities? And I want to outline four main areas of the Holy Spirit's work this morning. The first is revelation. The second is creation. The third is salvation. And the fourth is the Christian life. So what does the Holy Spirit have to do with revelation? 
When I say revelation, I'm talking about God revealing himself to people, certainly through the written word, not just talking about that last book of the Bible we know as Revelation. I've just said that the Bible helps us understand what the Holy Spirit does. But note, the Bible itself is a result of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, the inspiration of Holy Scripture. What is meant by this is that the Holy Spirit has inspired human authors to write both the Old and New Testament. He caused humans to write down his words in order to reveal his nature, his character, his attributes, his purposes, and actions in the world. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out. Sound familiar? Breath. The Apostle Peter, too, says the same thing in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of a man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what inspiration means. So the Holy Spirit is central to the giving of God's word to us. But additionally, we should notice that the Holy Spirit is also central to correctly understanding and applying the word of Scripture. Now, perhaps you've had this experience where you've read a passage or a verse of Scripture, you have no idea what it means. And then a few years down the road as you're walking with Christ, it clicks. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's called illumination. He allows us to understand and apply the words of Scripture. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 13. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So all in all, without the Holy Spirit's activity, when it comes to revelation, we would neither possess God's word, but neither would we have a hope of understanding it as God intended. The second area of the Holy Spirit's ministry or activity is creation. Creation. The first time we see God's Spirit in the pages of Scripture is right at the very beginning. The first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There in the darkness of the unformed world, God's Spirit was moving like wind across the waters. And in that moment, God and His infinite power began to create life out of nothing and beauty and order out of chaos. It's God's Spirit that does these things. In the Nicene Creed, we say, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. All life begins with God's Spirit. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 104. When you send forth your Spirit, O God, your creatures are created. And through your Spirit, you renew the face of the ground. On the sixth day of creation, when God created human beings, we see the Spirit there bringing Adam to life, right? Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed 
into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There, in the beginning of creation, we see God's Spirit as wind, as breath, as power, and as life-giving Spirit. But the Spirit's creative work is not done just, just in those seven days. In fact, the Spirit is still creating, still recreating, particularly when it comes to the human heart, which leads us to the third area of the Spirit's work, and that is salvation. Just as God's Spirit has created us, so does the Holy Spirit work to redeem us from those forces which want to uncreate us, sin, death, and evil. The Spirit is at work in salvation and redemption in a few different ways. First of all, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and enables us to believe. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verses 8 and 13. He says, When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. You see, the thing about the human heart is that we are so estranged from God by our sin that we don't even desire to repent of it until God's Spirit first convicts us of it. But likewise, when we are ready to repent, when we're ready to turn away from our sin and put our faith in Christ, it's the Spirit working there to enable us to believe. Second of all, the Holy Spirit is given to us in our conversion. When we repent and we believe and when we are baptized, God's Spirit is given to us. It doesn't get much clearer than what Peter preaches to the crowd on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes at conversion. I know there's debate in the church about this, but there shouldn't be. It's clear. We receive the Holy Spirit through faith and baptism, and the Spirit does a few things in us. He causes us to be born again. We use the word regenerated to talk about this. You can see John chapter 3, for an example. The Spirit washes us clean. Again, that imagery of water. You can see Titus chapter 3. The Spirit adopts us as God's children. See Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. And also the Spirit seals or authenticates us as God's own. See Ephesians 1, verse 13. Now, I talked about each of those things that I just mentioned in my sermon on a theology of holy baptism, which I gave a few years ago. And so I don't want to take time this morning to unpack those further. If you'd like to learn some more, if you'd like to hear more, feel free to listen or re-listen to that sermon, A Theology of Holy Baptism. Instead, today, I want to turn to the fourth and final area of the Holy Spirit's work, and that is the Christian life. When we are saved by God's Spirit, surprise, surprise, His work is not done. We are not finished products just because we believe. Instead, the Holy Spirit has an ongoing work of transformation in our lives as Christians. And there are few ways in which His presence and power are prominent. First of all, the Holy Spirit indwells us, indwells. 
As we heard Jesus say today in our gospel lesson from John chapter 14, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the ultimate manifestation of God's personal presence, that God would actually not just be with us, but in us. In fact, all of the imagery of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple where God's presence dwelled, all of that is fulfilled when the Spirit tabernacles and temples within us. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Second, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Sanctifies us. By grace, through faith in Christ, we are justified before God and we are declared righteous because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. But because we're declared righteous by God, God invites us, requires us, to begin to live righteously if we bear his name. The power for righteous living, it comes from the Spirit of God. Have you tried to live like Jesus on your own? Good luck. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit is the only hope that we have of becoming the kind of people that God wants us to be. William Temple, the 20th century Anglican Archbishop, had a really helpful way of describing this dynamic. He says, It is no good giving me a play like Hamlet or like King Lear and then telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it is no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it, but I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. This leads us to the next ministry, the spirit. Third, the Holy Spirit bears the fruit of the spirit in us. The fruit of the spirit. This comes from Galatians chapter 5, where Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. Paul tells us that where the Spirit dwells, the fruit of the Spirit come. So if the Spirit dwells in us, then the fruit of the Spirit will come in us. And what this fruit is, is the kind of attitudes and behaviors that God desires in us, that we become like Him. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. 
In addition to cultivating godly attitudes and behaviors in us, the Holy Spirit also empowers us with certain gifts for two reasons. To build up the body of the church, edification, but also to bring the gospel to the nations. And these are called spiritual gifts. Paul explains these in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 and 7, where he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the building up. Fifthly, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, intercedes for us. Now, admittedly, this is strange to think of God praying for us. This may make us think of the Spirit as powerless, like he needs to pray because he can't do it on his own. But this isn't what's meant by this. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So what we find is the Holy Spirit intercedes for us not because he's impotent to do anything, but because he ministers to us in our impotence out of his compassion and consolation. It's a beautiful thing. Finally, and sixthly, the Holy Spirit makes us one. He unifies the church. We talked about this last week when it came to oneness. St. Augustine conceived of the Holy Spirit as the bond of love between God the Father and God the Son. And in a similar way, he saw the Spirit as the bond of love between God and believers, and also between believers and believers. I think this is a helpful way to think of the Spirit as the love of God, which brings unity to all that God loves. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Likewise, he says in Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If our congregation, if, if the universal church has a hope of maintaining what unity we have and cultivating unity in the future, it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that that will come. We, Living Faith, are a congregation that aspires to, to live out the three streams of Christian spirituality. Scripture, sacrament, and spirit. In that third stream, what we long for is for the Spirit of God to be present among us, to be with us. But more than that, we want to, as Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit filled up and overflowing with the power of God and what God wants to do in our lives. The Holy Spirit really is like 
a wild goose. We chase him. We seek him. We seek his power, but we never master him. And yet, the wild goose's presence in our midst is not just optional, it's essential. Listen to what the late Anglican theologian J.I. Packer said. The Christian's life in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging in worship and outgoing in witness, is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate it, and only the Spirit can sustain it. So apart from the Spirit, not only will there be no lively believers and no lively congregations, there will be no believers and no congregations at all. If we are to be living faith, we need God's Spirit. And so with all these things in mind, as we look forward to Pentecost in three weeks, I think it's good for us to begin to pray this simple prayer together. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Amen? Let's pray. Spirit, we long to know you better. And we long to experience more of your power in our lives. We believe and we need you. Come, Holy Spirit, come and have your way in us. Bring your people, Lord, to the places that you wish us to be. And cause us, Lord, in all things to reflect your goodness and glory in the world. This we pray through you, the Spirit. Amen.